All right, our text for uh, this week is Mark 1, 9 through 27. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were amazed and they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him, and news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This is our uh, second in a week uh, a, a sermon in a series on uh, you know, Jesus and the question of identity. And in one sense, we're just asking the question of Jesus that we asked of the Holy Spirit uh, in the last sermon series, which is, who is Jesus? And specifically, what is God trying to tell us about the person of Jesus in the way that the narrative is put together in the Gospel of Mark? And, you know, in another sense, we're not just trying to figure out who Jesus is, but we're turning to the Gospel of Mark to try and figure out something about, I don't know, our own identities, like how we should think about our own identities and what it means to and whether or not we should hold on to the idea of being ourselves and how we ought to shape our vision of ourselves if we look at Jesus and essentially if we do what Jesus did. And as I, you know, uh, in beginning last week kind of implied that this question is a hot potato for a number of reasons. It's a, uh, uh, I don't know, let's say uh, uh, philosophically, theologically, and morally. Philosophically, it's a tough question because it forces us to ask the question, what is it that makes us us? So if you were asked to define who you are, I mean, outside of church, in church it's obvious what you'd say, but if you were asked uh, on the street by a stranger to define who you are, what would you lead with? Would you lead with your occupation, your political affiliation, uh, religious belief, your racial identity? Would you start by saying whether or not you were a fan of Duke? Uh, would you say some unique combination of all of the above? And it turns out that Jesus at least as presented in the Gospel of Mark, has an answer for that question. If you were to define yourself, on what grounds ought you to define yourself? So we'll, we'll get to that part. Theologically, I think, this question of identity is a really tough question 
because I don't know, like the, the, the Bible teaches us all kinds of things about what it means to be a human being. And I don't know, when we list those things off, there are ones that we love to list off, aren't there? Like, I love to say we're made in the image of God and each one of us is individually unique and loved and we were, I don't know, knit together in other mother's wombs uh, and God knew our name before time began and we have a calling for the kingdom. And like, there's all these awesome things that affirm who we are and our mission and our identity. But the Bible also teaches us some harder things about identity that run kind of smack up against how our culture wants us to think about identity. I don't know, because like, isn't it true that our culture has a doctrine about what it means to be a person too? And uh, I don't know, what does that doctrine say? It's like weird because it's like this uh, perfect little secular mirror of some of the most profound teachings in Christianity. And it's a kind of historical and empirical fact, the idea that people had a dignity that was all their own and that was worth respecting is actually a doctrine that comes out of Christian belief. There was a time when, I don't know, women and children didn't really count. And sometime in the Enlightenment, we said, ah, you know what, uh, they're people too. And because they're people, they have a unique and intrinsic dignity that deserves to be respected. And so like, as an empirical matter, our way of thinking about identity and what identity means definitely came out of Christian practice and, and, and Christian belief. But our culture has, uh, it goes further with it and it kind of abstracts the idea, I don't know, of God from it. So like, doesn't our culture love the idea of getting you to think about your identity around a concept that's something like authenticity? You know what I mean? Like, we have stories and stories and stories and we have practices about what it means to be human and what it means to be you. And like, I don't know, the story that we're kind of told is you got to figure out who you are. You know, we have a ton of teenagers in our in our congregation and they're in that time in life where they're like figuring out who they are and what they want and what they want to be. And even as parents, we tell them like, well, you got to figure out what your passion is and you got to figure out what matters to you and you have to decide on it and you have to kind of follow it. And I don't know, we're teaching our kids something about identity when we say that, aren't we? We're saying like, you have to figure out what it is that makes you, you, and you need to throw yourself into it. And in fact, our culture has this other doctrine that says, if you don't follow the thing that is uniquely you, you're consigning yourself to unhappiness. Because what makes you happy, and by the way, I'm gonna, we'll refer back to the kind of Latin idea of happiness is rest, like resting in the place where you're supposed to be. But what makes you happy is doing the thing that you're supposed to do, is figuring out your own unique mission. I say this to my undergraduates all the time, like, the reason why you're learning public speaking is because you've got important things to do in the world and I want you to be able to go out and do them. But I want you also to hear in that, in the secular version of, I don't know, the vision of what it means to be a human being is that we believe that in some way the goal of growing up and of being a full person is to do what it is that you're called to do to figure out what your desires and unique interests are and to pursue them. And I don't know, like there, we have to hear when we think about that Paul in Ephesians 4 who says that vision of the world can also be called what? Idolatry. It is the idolatry of the self. It is putting our own vision of what it is that we want to be first. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, this is starting at 21, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been captured by deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on a new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. So I don't know, it's a hard thing to think about, but I want you to kind of hold in tension 
the idea that our culture tries to tell you to figure out who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do, and the idea that the Apostle Paul says, I don't know, maybe that's not the best idea, and instead you ought to think about who it is that God asks you to be. You see, the point for Paul is that a new self is not self-generated. It's not like we make it up for ourselves. That a new self is a product of what? And he even says it here, turning, metanoia, which, as you recall, is about letting your mind be transformed into what? Something other than it was. So, uh, I don't know, we have this kind of cultural idea of authenticity and identity and the Gospels trying to kind of turn it upside down is what I think. And it turns out, uh, the, uh, uh, to complete the series of three, the account of Jesus and Mark has something to say to us about that too. Or that doesn't, that's the second one. Morality is the third one. There's this kind of moral question of identity and it stems from the theological one. And I don't know, it's something like, uh, are we to hold on to our own vision of identity? If holding on to our own vision of ourselves might be destructive for other people. We know that idolatry leads to sin. That's Paul's point in Ephesians. And we're kind of in a context where these larger cultural questions circulate us around us about questions of identity and privilege. And there's all this consternation for us about whether or not we ought to think about giving up our privilege or think about who has privilege or think about all these different questions. And I don't know, the question is that Jesus might uh, have something to say about Mark is to what degree should we hold on to our own vision of, our, of, of identity. So I want to today look at a larger swath of the Gospel of Mark than we usually look at, because basically in the reading for today, we've condensed like four stories. It's uh, the back end of the baptism. It's um, Jesus uh, going into the desert. It's Jesus calling the disciples. It's him uh, doing a healing, and it's him casting out a spirit. Hello. Okay, you want to stay up here? That's fine. So I don't know. Um, I want you to think about not just each one of those individual uh, stories or details or discrete parts, baptism, testing, calling of disciples, and exorcism. And what we're going to look at is what's in common in, the, in those four and what it says about the arc of the story. So last week I uh, uh, called attention to what I called the apocalyptic opening in Mark. So I don't know, I think I compared it to like uh, Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome or something. And, you know, there's not a long story about Jesus' genealogy or uh, his birth or the way we have in the other Gospels, but Jesus kind of pops on the scene as introduced by John. And in fact, the first eight verses of the Gospel aren't even about Jesus. They're about John, who foretells and introduces Jesus. And it's notable here that John speaks before Jesus does. And here's the thing. John is the one who says who Jesus is. So right off the bat, the power here is put in, I don't know, the tradition of the prophets or whatever to define Jesus' identity. But then, as promised last week, we'd pick up the baptism. There's the baptism. So Jesus shows up, and here are the notable things. Jesus doesn't speak in the baptism. In fact, only God speaks. And God says what? Behold, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's a descent of the Spirit to validate it. And I don't want to kind of whip a resurrection Daddy, church Daddy. hobby horse too, uh, too much. But as you've heard so many times... The public claiming of a son was the thing that conferred not only inheritance, but identity on a son. That you said, this is my son, and that you recognized a son in public was the thing that functionally made someone a son. And it gets back to, uh, I don't know, our vision of Middle Eastern ancient reproductive biology that held that son, uh, children came from the seed of the father. The mother really had nothing to do with it for them. And so for a father... To claim a son was what? It was a, not only conferring inheritance, but it was a way of giving a person identity. 
I made the point last week in, uh, I don't know, working for this transition towards the baptism that Jesus is the one person in whom identity and mission are equivalent. And I think the reason why that the Gospel of Mark is suggesting to us is because he accepts that mission as the core of his identity. Jesus is the one who we take to have come to save us. And it is weird that in the beginning of this gospel, he does not spend almost a, he spends almost no time talking about or worrying about the content of his own identity. Instead, in the beginning of Mark here, Jesus accepts an identity that is laid out for him by the prophets and that is certified for him by the descent of the Spirit. And if you think this is just random reading or happenstance or it's just bad authorship or Maybe you don't really know what the gospel's up to. You have the story that is introducing the hero that comes onto the scene. It is the prophets and John that introduce him. It is the father and, and, and the baptism that certifies his identity. Jesus doesn't really talk very much. He's sent into prison after all that, uh, or a wilderness after all that, and John is put into prison. And the very next thing, the first place in the gospel where we see Jesus speak is what? His declaration of his mission. And what is the declaration of the mission that he have? Anybody have Mark 1 open there? And scroll up to the top as easily as the next person, I guess. His declaration of his mission, ready? After John, this is 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, anybody, what's, what's notable about that declaration of mission? What is it? Anybody notice anything about it? Well, look, when we think about, imagine thinking about a CEO who is coming out to announce to the market that they are going to bring a company public. Or imagine thinking about a person who is on a mission for social justice and they'd like to lead a movement in it. Imagine someone in our day trying to take on some thing that coordinated the will and or intention of lots of other people. That person would talk relentlessly about who they are. They would have their own mission statement. They would have their own identity. They would say what they're about. They would probably give you a biography of where they came from and a list of their accomplishments. When it comes time for Jesus to introduce Jesus's public mission, there is no mission statement. There is no bio. There is no any of those things. Instead, there is simply a statement that the time has come and the kingdom has drawn near. What's beautiful, I think, about the way that Jesus uh, introduces his public ministry here is that Jesus refers to no idea that is not one that is given to him either by the character of time, and the uh, word for time here we'll talk about in a moment, or by the nearness of God's kingdom. Jesus simply says that the time has come and the kingdom is at hand, and instead of doing all the things that we imagine Jesus could do, talking about who he was and what his mission meant, he does it. In fact, the Greek says that when the time has come near, the word here is kairos, which you've heard about a bunch of times before. It actually says that the time has been fulfilled and that God's kingdom has drawn near. He does not say that his own presence on the scene makes it possible, although in the apocalyptic sense, that is certainly the case. The point is that when Jesus says the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom comes near, he has not put himself at the center of the declaration, though he clearly is important. But instead, Jesus sees the character of the mission as something that God has sent him on and that he believes calls on all of us, presumably every person who would follow him, to repent 
and believe, to believe the gospel and the good news, which is the fulfillment of God's promise. Jesus, who has every right and every reason to declare that he has come personally to realize God's mission or to inaugurate it, doesn't do it. Instead, he sees himself as an extension of the kingdom of God and God's mission. And that is a testimony not only to the fact that mission and identity are equivalent in him, but that the character of that equivalence is rooted in Jesus's deference and submission to the will of God. That's why I think as we move through the gospel of Mark, we're not going to find Jesus running around saying, yes, I'm the embodiment of God. And yes, I am the incarnation of God. But instead, the most direct testimonies to who Jesus is are going to come out of the mouth of the crowds and demons. Because the point of the gospel is to say something like this. Jesus is inviting people to see his person as a means of or a bridge to or a window to experiencing the character of God. And it's remarkable and it deserves time for us to reflect on that Jesus, who is God, sees himself as the concrete means to point to the character of the Father. And the way that he does it is through deference and submission to the character of the Father. And I think that's what's most beautiful about the idea of Jesus as the one in whom identity and mission and person are equivalent. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is comparatively silent about who he is when the question is posed to him. But instead, Jesus is, I don't know, acting out or performing or demonstrating to us or showing us in the narrative that he receives his identity from the Father at the baptism, that it's confirmed by John and the Spirit and the people and even by unclean spirits. And it's why I think Jesus inaugurates his public mission, not by releasing a mission statement or whatever we might do in our modern day, but instead Jesus begins it by simply and straightforwardly and nonchalantly saying, all right, guys, it's time. The kingdom of God is near. And then he just goes on about his business. I want you to think about the next three things that happen. The reason why we're reading those three things together as an extension of this idea that Jesus's uh, identity is about deference to the father. Three things happen. Bam, bam, bam. And I don't know, uh, I think maybe what the gospel is trying to demonstrate to us here is something like when people are faithful to the call and mission of God and, 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 and kind of put their faith in and defer to God, that amazing things tr- are, happen in the world, that things are transformed. And the account is written here to make it seem like, I don't know, like think about this fishers of, 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 of people quote. Like, this is one that I remember a ton from Sunday school. It's, uh, I don't know, uh, wasn't there an old song that we used to sing about becoming fishers of men? And we all, like, it seemed like such a beautiful, comfortable idea. And so I thought, in, in preparing for this sermon, I'd wanted to not only focus on this idea of Jesus' identity, but I, 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 I kind of did a bunch of reading on how they think about the metaphor of fishers of men. And it turns out, when you look at the kind of, I don't know, cultural context and academic work about it, it is a horrifying metaphor. It is not a happy, comfortable metaphor like we've thought about it. Like, I don't know. I mean, at least the, uh, it, 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 and I, the, the, it's a stranger story, I guess, than I first thought. And it makes the immediacy of the disciples' response, I don't know, uh, even more miraculous than it was. So, like, we have this idea of fishing as, like, it's a Saturday and you've got some spare time and... Maybe you get the kids together and you kind of dip some bait in the water and you wait and hey, we've got a fish on the line and we reel it in and if the fish is big enough, maybe we 
take it home or eat it. But typically, we, you know, I mean, for most of us, we throw the fish back and we put a picture on Facebook and say what a great day it was fishing. Okay, so we've got this idea of fish eating that's kind of associated with leisure and fun. But if you were a professional fisher person, fishing would not even be primarily about the time that you spent on the water. I mean, the time that you spent on the water was important. But these guys were like dragnet fishermen. So they're like dragging this net through the water where there's tons of different fish. And like, I don't know, the primary task that they'd be doing, and if you thought about the task of a fisher person, would be to take this big pile of fish and be like, okay, you're dead. You're back in the water. We're going to use you for something out. Fishing was about sorting. And it was like this gruesome task where you were either culling fish or sorting fish out. So when Jesus rolls up to a couple guys on the shore and is like, I want to make you fishers of people. He's not saying like, hey, come join a modern megachurch where we can be comely enough to get people to come and listen to a sermon. He's saying, I want you to sort people into who's in the cull pile and who goes back. And in fact, that metaphor makes a lot more sense with the call to the kingdom being about metanoia. Because he's saying, I want you to be the mediators of this turning where we get people's mind to kind of turn back and to establish the character of the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying he's saying, hey, I want you to be able to slit the knife into some people. But what he's saying is, I'm inviting you into this task of establishing the kingdom, which is about making choices about inclusion and exclusion. And it's about this, uh, like sorting the pile of fish to figure out where best they ought to go. And so the fact that these guys respond to Jesus by simply dropping their nets is amazing because he is asking them something that is essentially incomprehensible to them. And yet, I think the gospel is set up for us to say that even though Jesus is asking them to do this task, which is in essence incomprehensible to them, they immediately drop their nets and go. Because the story, I think, at the beginning of the gospel of Mark is trying to point out is that because Jesus is submissive to the Father in terms of accepting his identity, that there are real effects in the world, and that Jesus becomes the window through whom and for whom and, uh, and by whom we see the very character of God. We see this idea repeated in the driving out of the impure spirit and the healing, don't we? Like, there are all kinds of things that we can draw from this, and Trey and I have both preached about both of those. Like, of course, it also demonstrates that Jesus has authority over spirits and over sickness and health. But the thing I want you to keep your eye on here in the arc of the narrative and not just in the details is that because Jesus receives his identity from the Father, that it's an identity that is confirmed by the prophets, it is demonstrated in the baptism, and it is in fact verbally confirmed by the Father in the descent of the, of the Spirit, Jesus is able to accomplish these things without any seeming work that he simply asks the disciples, that he simply tells the unclean spirit to go, that he simply declares the healing. And that the point that Mark is trying to make for us that often we don't see when we break it into the little specific pieces is that because Jesus is the one whom accepts and moves forward and submits to the identity that is given him by the Father and the kingdom, the response in the world is immediate. And it is immediate despite the fact that Jesus does not do the things that we'd imagine a normal charismatic leader or healer or spiritual person to do. He just says, the kingdom of God is drawn near, the time is right, let's get going on it. In fact, the scripture goes to great pains, I think, in writing this story to actually frame Jesus as comparatively passive. In each of these instances, he simply declares the thing that the Father asks him to declare, and the result comes about. Why? What are we supposed to learn or take from this. At first, I was like, well, okay, so we got a great point about the identity of the mission and the, uh, uh, Jesus' identity and 
in the effect in the world. But I think there's a, uh, for me, there's a lesson that is deeper here. And it is, uh, it is one that is uh, both near and dear to the heart of any parent. You know, as we raise kids and our kids get older and they ask themselves the questions about who they are. And they ask themselves questions about what they want to be in more meaningful ways than they had before. And as, I don't know, as we kind of hit various phases across the congregation in our own lives, we're also the, asking the question, who are we and what is it that I'm called to do? And I think one of the great lessons of life as you get older is that it's not that that becomes more clear to you. It becomes less clear to you as things change and as things are different. And sometimes there's this, uh, there's this difficult uh, question that we all have to face about who we are and what it is that makes us us. And I don't know, I think that the lesson that I take from it is uh, summed up well in the work of Augustine, specifically in the Confessions. Uh, Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And his point is something like that in his experience, one of the most exhausting things that human beings face, unlike what the modern world tells us, is the injunction to be yourself and to be true to yourself. And we will and our kids will and our friends will and folks in this congregation will spend years trying to figure out who they are and what they want. And then we spend even more time figuring out if we wanted the right things. And finally, we spend even more time deciding if we did the things that were necessary to do for us to get the things that we think we wanted. And instead of just leaning into the fact that we were given a mission and identity by the character of God and resting in it, we engage in the exhausting work of trying to figure out who we are and what we're supposed to do. And we do all of that instead of just leaning into the fact that we are presented with a world that is uncertain and difficult to understand and that we are more ambivalent about what we want or what we need, but there is a Savior who has reached out to us, who embraces us, and who asks us simply to rest in Him. Augustine sees the character of Jesus and the story of Jesus, especially as represented in the Gospel of Mark, as a paradigmatic example of a person who is finding rest in God. In fact, Augustine, in his own journey, said he's inspired by the imitation of the person of Jesus, who fully rested his identity that was given to him by his father. Can you imagine what it would be like to rest in instead of constantly and anxiously working to establish an identity that is yours, to rest in the one that was given to you by your father? Can you imagine what kind of joy would result from the idea that you do not need to struggle to be yourself or to figure out who you are, but instead to rest in the idea that you are a child of God and that your mission is to advance the kingdom? Can you imagine what it would be like to really find that understanding of happiness that says not that it is a state of pleasure that you achieve, but that it is to be situated in the place where you were always supposed to be? Because the thing is, like Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, who submits to the Father and therefore changes the world. The thing is, we think so much about who we are and supposed to be for the sake of achieving God's purposes that we do not think as much as we should about who it is that God calls us to be for the sake of perfecting us. 
We spend so much time in our spiritual lives whipping ourselves, saying, who is it that I'm supposed to be for the character of God instead of doing the thing that we are called to do? We've, uh, many of us have inherited this idea that we need to whip ourselves into shape to be the person that God wants us to be, and we forget that the model that Jesus suggests for us is that instead of trying to be the person you think God wants you to be, you simply need to rest in the person that God has made you by accepting the identity provided you by the Father exactly like Jesus did. And the point of the Gospel of Mark, at least in the first chapter or so, is that because Jesus didn't worry about what it means to establish his own agenda, own identity, and instead deferred to and submitted to the Father, the world changed and everything changed. Because by resting in the Father, like Jesus does, not only do we answer the question of who we are, but instead we can become what God intends us to be in the world simply by surrendering. I'm going to close the poem from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I think gets more directly at this point than any conclusion I could write. Who Am I by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, written uh, from inside a concentration camp. Who am I? They often tell me I am stepped from my cell's confinement calmly and cheerfully and firmly like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly and proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know myself to be? Restless, longing, sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation, powerlessly trembling for friends, at infinite distance, weary and empty, at praying, at thinking, at making, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptible woebegone weakling? Or is there something within me, like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions. Whoever I am, thou, you knowest, God, that I am yours. Amen.